you to know I'm not from here. I may have a bit of an accent. Who likes the Australian accent? When I tell you, if there is one thing I have heard over and over again being here for like a few days is I love your accent. So you're welcome. You get to hear it for the next 35 minutes. Who has never heard me speak before? Bit of a way of most people, amazing. You have no idea what you're in for. I'm just kidding. Well, like we, we kind of already, you've got a bit of who I am. My name is Nolene Sedra. We're from Sydney, Australia. So we pastor Echo Church. We have for the past six years alongside my amazing husband, Andrew. He's the handsome Egyptian you'll see like yelling about the LGBTQ online. If you don't know, go check it out. If you know, you know. But um, it's such an honor to be here and I couldn't, I can't even begin talking unless I take a moment to honor this platform and to honor your senior pastors, Pastor Troy and Penny Maxwell. Can you take a moment to honor your senior pastors? I know they are not here, but when I tell you, it is such an amazing thing to have pastors that are so bold in the faith, that speak unapologetically about the Word of God. We're in a time where, as tragic as it is, the church has been silent on so many biblical issues. The hills that we are supposed to be dying on, many are caving and remaining silent. So it is such an amazing thing to have pastors who are willing to pave the way and make sure the next generation is standing on the shoulders of giants. So can you honor your senior pastors one more time? I honor them for who they are, what they do, how they speak, and it is an honor to be on this platform. And where are my ladies at? Okay, okay, who is keen for authentic? Can I just say, I know you guys have heard it already, but I drove, uh, sorry, drove, I flew in from Sydney for this conference. So if you're not signed up yet, I don't know what your excuse is. I came from across the world, a 15 hour plus five hour flight. It was brutal, let me tell you. So if I don't have an excuse, you don't have an excuse, amen? Amazing, it's gonna be amazing. But are you excited to get into the Word of God? I hope so, I hope so. Would you pray with me before we do? Because let not my words be spoken, but only the Word of God, amen? Amen, God, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come in this service this morning. We ask that your Word would be a lamp unto our feet, that you would redirect our course, Holy Spirit. That you are welcome here this morning, that let not my words be spoken, but yours alone. And just like Moses said, Holy Spirit, if your presence does not go before us, do not send us. So we pray that you would be in the midst of your people, that you would reside in this sermon, that your truth would be declared in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, amen. Okay, so you guys are in a series, which I love the idea of this series. I know your pastors have been spitting fire. It's been amazing. I've heard a little bit. It's pretty cool. You are talking what the Bible says about. And can I just say, it is such a blessing that your pastors are actually speaking about things that are important. Like there are many churches and being from Australia, it's a bit of a different game. I'll give you a bit of an insight is a lot of people are very silent. And in fact, the things that are controversial, the things that are a little bit, you know, up in the air, culturally speaking, let's not talk about that stuff because we wanna make sure people come to church and feel good. So the fact that your church, your pastors are willing to address key issues when it comes to the cultural war, whatever culture is saying is the biggest deal ever. So this is an amazing series and I have the honor of talking about one specific topic. Some of you may like it, some of you may not like it at all, but personally I think it's one of the most destructive movements of our society. In fact, we've seen it kind of spring up over the last 200 years, but it's very much rooted since the very beginning in Genesis. What I'm talking about is we're going to explore what the Bible says about feminism. Ooh, it got a bit quiet in here. Who's excited to talk about feminism? I hope so. And now maybe you're saying like, okay, wait a second. Feminism is gender equality. You're saying that gender equality is one of the most destructive movements of our society. Well, I'm here to argue that that's actually not what feminism is. In fact, we're gonna kind of dig into the roots of feminism and show just how anti-Christ and unbiblical this movement is. In fact, feminism doesn't necessarily mean gender equality. Gender equality, based on the actual definition, would be egalitarianism. Who's heard that term? 
Say it five times fast, it's hard. Egalitarianism. So let's, for argument's sake, I thought it would be good to go to the Oxford Dictionary, kind of give you the definitions of these words to help us understand what this movement is. Is that okay with you guys? Okay, so egalitarianism is the doctrine that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. That's gender equality. Sounds good. This is feminism. Feminism is the advocacy of women's rights on the grounds of equality of the sexes. So I don't know if you've noticed, there's a little bit of a difference there. You have egalitarianism, which is equality, gender equality. Then feminism is specifically the advocacy of women's rights. So one is kind of leveling the playing field and one of them is putting one specific gender above the rights of another. Now this is where it gets a little bit complicated because when it comes to feminism, there's so much within the roots of feminism that goes directly against God's design. And we're gonna pull it apart a little bit, but one of which is what you'll hear a lot if you go to any kind of feminist uh, march or abortion protest, whatever it is, anything linked to the movement, you will hear this phrase, dismantle the patriarchy. Who's heard that? I'm sure we've all heard that. Destroy the patriarchy. Now, what exactly does this mean? What exactly is patriarchy? Well, really, when you think of the idea of patriarchy, it stems out of this idea that is a biblical idea. But before we get into Bible, let's look at what Oxford Dictionary says. So it's actually got two different, uh, I guess, definitions, one of which is one that we can kind of get behind. The other is very interesting when you look socially what the world thinks patriarchy is. So these are the two definitions. Patriarchy, number one, a system of society or government which the father or eldest male is the head of a family and descent is reckoned through the male line. Sounds right, like it sounds pretty biblical. This is the second definition. Look how vastly different these are. A system of society or government in which men hold all the power and women are largely excluded from it. Now, it's so interesting because these are so different. You know, you have this idea of a government system or a social system, but the two are very different. One, it talks about, you know, the, the idea is that God has set man as the head of the house and this society is led by men. And then the other definition, which is quite crazy, and I don't know if you would agree with me, if we were to look at the second definition that men hold all the power and women are excluded from everything in society, I would agree we should dismantle the patriarchy. But that's actually not what patriarchy means. If we look in a biblical sense, patriarchy stems from the word patriarch, which if you don't know, the patriarchs are these mighty men that God called, specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the three patriarchs that we see in scripture. And these men were commissioned by God to lead society and to fulfill God's will on this earth as it is in heaven. So they really did start off, they were the basis of the people of God. The people of God stem out of these patriarchs. And patriarch in the Hebrew is the word father. So really, this idea of patriarch was set by God himself. And this is why we see this first definition, it sounds a little bit familiar. The idea of a male or males leading the household, therefore leading society, it is a God-given position. And so we see father, what exactly does patriarch mean from a biblical perspective? Well, what it means is the father has been set by God as the head of the household in order to lead his family in the ways of God. So a father is charged to protect the household, to provide for the household, to be a covering to the rest of the household. This is what leadership means. And so feminism, this idea of dismantling the patriarchy, quite literally is trying to tear down God God's design for the household. It is trying to tear down what God has set in stone as this is creation, this is the good way that things should function, and it is one set by God Himself. So, already we can see gender equality is not exactly the goal of the feminist movement. If one of the biggest goals is to dismantle the patriarchy, then that means one of the biggest goals of feminism is to distort God's design for gender. Now this is a big deal to God. If you're sitting here and you're like, okay, well, f feminism, it's just a left or a right thing. It's just a political thing. It's, not, it's just a cultural thing. Can we actually talk about biblical issues? Well, I've kind of given you a little bit of an insight into how big of a deal this is to God because gender, in case you didn't know, reflects the image of God. Amen. We see in the very beginning, this is what God says about humanity, male and female, He created them in His image. 
So that means masculinity reflects the image of God. In fact, men, you have a powerful role to reflect God the Father in a sense by stepping up as the head of the house, by protecting, by providing and being a covering for your household. What an incredible honour that is. And women, we in our femininity reflect the image of God in our submission and in, we'll get to it, trust me. Women, you're gonna be like, whoa, what an honour to submit. Don't you worry, I know it's not a fun word to hear. We'll get there. But this is the beauty of masculinity and femininity. In their own ways, they are vastly different. If you're married, you know what I'm talking about, right? Andrew and I, our biggest argument is that he's insensitive and I'm too sensitive. It's just men and women. I don't know if you guys agree with me. But this is the biggest thing is we are so vastly different from our sexuality to our sex drive, to our physicalities, to our psychology, neurology, biology. God has made man and woman so vastly different, but in their own rights, man and female are made to glorify the image of God. So this is not just a political thing. It's not just a cultural discussion. This is actually a biblical discussion. Why? Because gender is sacred because it reflects the image of God. So this is a big deal to God. So if you came to church today and now you're like, oh, I'm listening to a political talk. No, 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 no. You're learning Bible. You're learning what God has to say about His structure and His design for His people. Amen? Amen. So this is the whole idea of feminism, to dismantle the patriarchy, to distort God's design. And maybe you're sitting here like, okay, but the Bible is made by men, right? It was written by men. So of course, the Bible is gonna advocate for men leading the household and society. Well, interesting point, and I'm not judging you because been there, done that. When I was in my stupid progressive days, thought I, know, thought I knew more than God, bit stupid, we've all been there. When I was in those days, I, I considered this idea that, well, okay, we need to approach the Bible carefully because the Bible was written by men. So maybe the idea of patriarchy was put in there by men because they're men. So obviously it's gonna highlight this idea. Well, to that answer, I have one very important question. Are you ready for it? You don't have to answer it out loud, but I mean, do it if you want. Do you believe that the Bible is the perfect word of God? Amazing, I love to hear it, music to my ears. Yes, we believe that the Bible is the inherent perfect word of God. It is the infallible word of God, perfect and whole. That means if you see the idea of patriarchy, male as the head of the household set by God from Old Testament to New Testament, you have to conclude that this as the perfect word of God is a perfect idea. It is an idea set by God Himself in His word and it is good. It is not just good, it is perfect. It is the best thing for a functioning society under God. In fact, this is a representation of the kingdom of God. So the idea, if you were to believe that this idea of patriarchy is just some male bias put in by the biblical writers, then you would have to conclude that the Bible is not the perfect word of God. And if you were to conclude that, then I would put you outside of the Christian camp. So as Christians, we believe, yeah, I know, I said it, it's all good bit judgy, it's fine. So this is the whole idea, is feminism at, at its core is a distortion of God's perfect design for humanity. So let's take a look a little bit because this is the problem, right? When we look at society, the biggest thing happening right now, as you'll notice, is that society hates boundaries, right? Gender is fluid. Right, there's no binary, there's no right or wrong, there's just be what you want, however you want, and no one gets to put you in a box, it's because it's freedom. We all want freedom, right? This is, a, in fact, it's an instinct of every human being is to be free because that's how God made us, but this is a very important thing, is freedom only exists within boundaries. What do I mean by that? There was a study done and these uh, psychologists or I guess sociologists, they took a bunch of children and they put them in a playground and they had some teachers there to kind of look after them and one of the playgrounds were fenced in. So they had two different groups of kids. One of them were fenced in and they found that the children would explore and they would go all the way to the borders, all the way to the fence, they would go everywhere exploring within the, play, within the playground. But then they had a second group of children and the second group of children they put in a playground that was not fenced in. So it was completely free to roam however you wanted to. 
what they found is this second group of children stayed as close to the middle and as close to the teachers as possible because they did not feel free to roam. In other words, they didn't know what was safe and unsafe because boundaries show you where is the safeguards of your freedom. You have the freedom to explore within these boundaries. And in fact, this is human nature that we actually exist to have boundaries. In fact, God has created order out of chaos. That's the, in the beginning, we see God creates order out of chaos. This is his function. So all of creation is bringing order to chaos. So you as a human being, you are created with this desire to be within the boundaries of God's desire. But this is the problem, right? We see in the very beginning, God has put boundaries in Adam and Eve. You are free to explore and do whatever you want, eat of any tree, except, here's my boundary, this one. Because I'm God and you can't be God, so let's place this boundary here. You're just a human being. And we know humans are humans. They rebel and disobey against God, move outside of the boundaries that God has set. So this is human nature in our sinful nature is to overstep the boundaries God has set. But this is the point, is boundaries have to be within, freedom, sorry, has to be within the boundaries of God's design. So everything that the world is saying, gender is fluid and nothing is binary. There's no male, female, it's just in between, be who you want, act how you want. It's all a social construct. It's a complete lie from the enemy. In fact, gender is not a social construct. It is something that is sacred before God. Amen? Amen. So where does this all come from? We know, okay, human beings try to go outside of the boundaries of God's word. We know that feminism already kind of seems like it's an anti-biblical idea. Where did this all start? Well, honestly, this is really, if you look in Genesis, I'm a big Genesis advocate. Who loves Genesis? If you don't love Genesis, just you haven't studied it yet. That's honestly all I'll say. Just go into the Bible, study Genesis. You can see all of the issues that the world is going through, all of the cultural war stuff, the political stuff. You can find this all in the first three pages of the Bible. First three chapters in Genesis. So we see one of the biggest issues. We see the root of sin. In fact, in the very beginning in Genesis 3, you see the root of feminism. The root of feminism. Who knows what I'm talking about? If you don't, let's go into it. Let's read, who has their Bibles? Hey, it's a bit quiet. Who has their Bibles? You're in church. Wave it up in the air. Oh, I love to see a good old paper Bible. My husband, Andrew, loves the glow Bibles, you know, the screens, the one that glow. I just love a good old fashioned paper Bible, but you're ready to read a little bit. It's a bit of a read, but you're in church, right? Reading the Bible is not a problem. So Genesis chapter three, verse three, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And let's be honest, if you sin, the first thing you do when you hear God is to run. So look, exactly this is what they do. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. You guys are laughing because you know, you know. Look what happens next. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Then the woman said, it was the serpent that deceived me and I ate. Nobody ever wants to take responsibility, right? This is the result of sin. Jump down to verse 16. To so the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he will rule 
rule over you, excuse me. And then Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. So, like I said, this is the origins of feminism. Maybe you're like, okay, wait a sec, feminism? All I saw is like the, the, the fall, like the fall of man where man rebelled against God. But what you'll notice here is in the very beginning how the story progressive is, progresses is Eve, she does all of the talking. You women, you know what I'm talking about. We love to talk. In fact, I apologize that you came in late to this service. I like to talk and I went a little bit low over time. This is the whole point is women love to talk and it gets us into trouble very often. So Eve is taking on this responsibility. She's talking to this like demonic creature. Who would do that? I don't know, Eve. I guess any of us if we were in that situation. So she's chatting away with this demonic creature that's telling her to rebel against God's boundaries. And so Adam, what you'll notice is it's not just Eve that's getting us in this mess. In fact, Adam is standing right there next to her. You won't hear this very often spoken about, but in fact, I know Pastor Penny addressed women in leadership and she kind of mentioned this idea. What an insane fact that Eve, yes, sinned and rebelled against God, but the man has a role to play in this story. In fact, the man who was supposed to be the head of the household, leading his family in the ways of God, stood there passively as his wife led them into destruction. This is the very first time you see this demonic idea of feminism. This is the very first time you see woman stepping out of her God-given role of submission, overstepping the leadership of her head as the house Adam and leading them into a path of destruction. This is the root of feminism. And this is a really big deal because it's not just, like I said, women that have a role to play in this, it's the men as well. And in fact, feminism is not just destructive because women are crazy and want power over men. In fact, men have been passive as women have been leading the charge. Our society is only strong when strong men lead, amen. And this is the problem as we'll look throughout history how feminism has kind of taken its place in society. You'll see a common denominator is passive men. Passive men who sit back and watch women lead us into destruction and say, well, I don't know, it was her. It was her, it wasn't me. I didn't do anything. But you'll find in verse nine, who did God call out to? He called out to the man and he said, Adam, where are you? Where are you? And God would say the same thing to our society today. Men, where are you? Where are you as women march the streets barely wearing any clothes, fighting for bodily autonomy. Where are you? Where are you when the politicians are calling out voting same-sex marriage and destroying God's design for marriage? Men, where are you? When the schools in your, that your children attend are talking very anti-God ideas and the school is holding a board that parents get to say what they wanna say, men, where are you? This is the words that God would say to our society, to a godless, post-truth society. He would say to the man the same way he said in the garden, men, where are you? So this is the whole point, right? We see, okay, the roots of feminism is in the garden of Eden, but what we're seeing in society is actually quite bigger than what we expect. In fact, what we know as Christians is everything that you can see in the natural is just a response of something happening in the supernatural. If you didn't know, we actually live within one realm, but there are so many other realms that you cannot experience, you cannot see. And I think in the Western world, we get a little bit comfortable in our little here and now bubble. You have no clue the demonic forces that are attacking and they are attacking in these movements that claim to be good for society. And so what we're learning about, what we can see, the scheme that we can see behind the feminist movement is what we know biblically as the spirit of Babylon. What is the spirit of Babylon? Well, you'll know the word Babylon. Babylon was an actual kingdom at one point in the Bible. In the book of Daniel, we see this is a big part of the decline of the church was Babylon came in, or the people of God. Babylon came in, destroyed the people of God. They went into exile. This is a defining point for the people of God in the Bible. So Babylon was a kingdom in direct opposition to the kingdom of God, but it's actually a little bit more than that. Because we hear about Babylon in Revelation, we hear these words, Babylon must fall. It talks about the end time. So in the future, this is thousands of years beyond Daniel. In fact, this is even beyond us in our time now. In the end times, you see that Babylon must fall. 
So if you hear about Babylon in, in Revelation talking futuristically, we have to assume that it's not talking about the literal kingdom in the book of Daniel. In fact, what it's talking and addressing to is a kingdom that is spiritual. See, Babylon is not just a physical kingdom. Babylon is a spiritual kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of God. This is a big deal. This is what we're dealing with. So when the politicians are leading with supernatural powers behind them, they are leading for the spirit of Babylon. They are building a kingdom in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. Any antichrist idea that you see in power is a direct thing from the spirit of Babylon. This is an effect of a spirit bringing opposition to the kingdom of God. So you're like, okay, Nolene, how do I know it's in opposition to the kingdom of God? That's pretty extreme, right? Isn't it just a different culture and we should be diverse and inclusive and accept a different way of life? No, in fact, we can see the origins of Babylon not just in in uh, Revelation, not just in Daniel's time, but in fact, in the very beginning in Genesis, you see the origins of Babylon. What we know is people because of sin, right? And you know, you have this fight against the demonic and the natural and the demonic forces were influencing human um, forces as well. We know them as the Elohim. That's a whole different message we'll get to, but they were actually influencing people in power to build a kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom. So the first way we see this reflect itself is what we know as the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel. I know you're familiar, or Babel. You guys say Babel, right? Sorry, not from here. But the Tower of Babel or Babel, we see this is the origins of Babylon. You know, Babel, Babylon, you kind of see the similarity there. But what's happening here is a group of people out of their pride and arrogance against God and out of rebellion against God's kingdom think, you know what? We have the technology, it's just a brick, but apparently it's new technology. We have this new technology called the brick. We're so smart, we're so amazing. Let's build a kingdom and try to overthrow the God of heaven. This is the spirit behind this is a spirit in rebellion to God's kingdom. It's saying that God's way and structure is wrong and we can do it better. We can be like God. And I don't know if you know, that sounds a little bit familiar, the fact that we can be like God. What does it sound like? It sounds like what, what we just read in the story in the Garden of Eden. See, this is where the very first idea of Babylon comes from because Babylon really means rebellion against God's kingdom. And what we saw in the Garden of Eden is this serpent creature is a rebellious creature. It is a spiritual being in opposition and rebellion against God's holy kingdom. So we see this is what we're working with. We are working with the spirit of Babylon that is still around today, that is still in society, that is still in government, that is still in Hollywood, and it is behind every single idea that opposes the Bible. And it's behind feminism. So this is where we see this feminist idea of equality isn't actually what it is. What it is, it's a distortion of God's kingdom. It's an attempt to take what is sacred to God, destroy and distort it and build an opposing kingdom. So this idea of feminism is exactly what it sounds like. It is something in opposition to God's kingdom. And as Christians, you better believe that we have a, a stance of fighting and building the kingdom of God. So there is no place for feminism inside the church. And we'll go through a little bit about the nitty and gritty and what this looks like in the feminist movement, but plain and simple, feminism is not about gender equality. So they say, feminism is a distortion of God's design. It is a destruction of God's kingdom and it is a rebellion to God's divine order. So this is what we're working with here. We're working with the spirit of Babylon and one of the schemes that Babylon does is it takes something that is God-given, it takes an idea that is godly and it takes God off the throne, it distorts it and it uses it in a way that builds an opposing kingdom. And the way that it does this is it makes it sound nice. I don't know if you read when the, the serpent is talking to Eve, did God really say this? Oh no, he said that because he knows that you can be like him. In other words, no, God's ways are bad for you and these ways are better for you. See, this is the whole point, right? Babylon doesn't come looking scary and evil. Babylon comes looking like an angel of light. It comes looking like it's the best thing for you. And this is what feminism has done. And this is why it has distorted so many mindsets because it's good for you. You're not as, as high as a man in society, you're oppressed. And this is an idea of the patriarchy that is rooted in Christianity. In fact, it's evil. Look at the freedom that you could have if you go towards this direction instead. 
This is the scheme of Babylon to distort God's idea of right and wrong and to build an opposing kingdom. And it does so by convincing you that it is good. This is the whole tension of ideas, right? Good and evil. But we know as Christians, we don't get our idea of good and evil from experience or culture or the latest movie in Hollywood. We get our idea of right and wrong through Scripture. Amen. This is the holy Word of God. It is the only form of absolute truth in our culture. So what does the Bible say about this? Well, gender is something, like I said, that glorifies the maker. So if you were to say that God's design for gender is destructive, that God's design for gender is evil, not good, then you are saying to the maker that your ways are higher than his ways. You are falling into the same camp as the spirit of Babylon. You are building an opposing kingdom to the kingdom of God. So this isn't just politics. This isn't just a cultural war. This is a spiritual war. And every single Christian has a role to play. Every single Christian is involved in the fight. Every single Christian has a responsibility, amen. So we need to hear this as a church. We need to talk about the annoying and the tough and the complicated subjects in church. Thank God for a church that addresses this, amen. So this is the origins of feminism. So we see the women, woman rebels against God, the man submits, the woman leads. This is a distortion of God's design. Look at what God's consequence is to the man and the woman. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you have let her lead when it was your job, you have eaten of the tree that I commanded you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Women, are you ready to feel a little bit of conviction? Because I don't even like reading it off a page, but this is what we need to know. You ready? Hope you're ready. As women, this is something we need to get. You need to come to terms with this idea. Your desire for power over men is rooted in sin. Oh, got a bit quiet. I know Pastor Penny addressed women in leadership, which is such a, a biblical stance on this. And I'm not saying women can't lead, but what we are saying is that women cannot lead above men. Amen. This is the point, is the desire to lead above men is rooted in sin, black and white, plain and simple. You're like, oh, but, but, but it's my strength and he's a little bit more of a, a quiet person, I'm a little bit more extroverted. Okay, you can be extroverted, he can be introverted, but when it comes to the main issues, when it comes to leading the charge, men, you have a responsibility to be bold and courageous before God as the head of the household and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So in the moments when Adam was confronted with sin, when he stood by passively as his wife led the household into destruction, not just the household, she led entire humanity into destruction. This is the core of sin, right? Feminism is at the core and the root of sin. So this is the point is for men, where are you? Where are you? If you are committed to building the kingdom of God, you have to be committed to the standard and the structure that he has set in the household. And women, I know we don't like to hear it, but you are called to submit. Yes, women are called to leadership under a man, but within a household, within a society, women are called to be a helper. And this is the beautiful thing, right? Gender glorifies God as the maker. It's not just because it sounds nice. It's not just because God made it like that for our sake. In fact, the idea of gender, headship and submission is something that reflects the very image of God. What do I mean by that? Look at 1 Corinthians verse 11. Verse three, it says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So let me ask you another really important question. You don't have to answer it out loud if you don't want to. It's a bit awkward when you say the wrong thing and people, oh, no, that's not the answer. Very important question. Are you ready for it? Do you believe that Jesus is less than God the Father? No, of course not. Because if you were to believe that, that would be heresy. If you didn't know, now you know. Of course, Jesus is not less in value than God the Father. In fact, we believe that our God is three in one. Equal in substance, equal in value. In fact, they are all worthy of nothing that we could give them, amen. So this is the whole idea, right? Is what the world is saying, they look at church and the Bible and the way that God talks about headship and submission and says that it's oppressive. 
It's oppressive. In fact, submission means to be under. That means that you're oppressed. Headship means to be over. That means that you are above somebody else in value. And this is the biggest thing that gender equality tries to talk about is that the Bible is against gender equality. Well, this is the whole point. And we, we know this in church is that God has made men and women equal in value. Equal in value, you are equal image bearers. Equal image bearers, like I already mentioned, masculinity reflects God's image, femininity reflects God's image, but God has made men and women so vastly different in function. So this is the beautiful thing, is God has made a woman to submit and he has made man to lead as the head of the house. And so this is the biggest thing. If you were to believe that submission makes you inferior in value, then you would be a heretic because God has displayed this idea of headship and submission in his nature himself as the triune God. The father and the son reflect the idea of headship and submission. We read that just as a wife is submitted to a husband, and just as the church is submitted to Jesus, so Jesus is submitted to the Father. So we see a reflection of headship and submission in the very image of who God is. What an absolute honor. And this is why it is such a big deal to get this right, because you're not just doing what's right or wrong in God's eyes, it actually goes deeper. You're actually distorting the image of God in the worst way. You are saying, and this is what many churches say, right? They, they exegete this wrong, they look at this, they don't know how to interpret the Bible, and they look at this and say, oh, submission is a cultural thing. Oh, just in that time, they had to submit in that time. And now women and men, we're equal to do what we want and, and, and whatever roles we want to. Well, this is the whole point. Like I said, patriarchy, submission, headship is not just from Old Testament to new. In fact, it surpasses time because it surpasses humanity. In fact, it's in the very image of God himself. We see the Father and Jesus displaying the idea of headship and submission. So that means, men, you have the extraordinary honor of displaying the image of God when you step up as the head of the household and you lead and protect and provide. You have an incredible honor to display the Father's heart, the Father heart of God. What an incredible honor is that? And women, trust me, it gets better. You get the honor of submitting to your husband. And maybe you're like, the honor of submitting? You literally said men get to lead and do all of the fun stuff and women, you get the honor of submitting, come on. Well, look at this, this is beautiful. Jesus himself submitted to the Father. So that means women, when you, as you learn to submit to your husband, a man that is under God as the head, not talking about an abusive relationship where the man is outside of God's will. Let me be clear on that. What I'm talking about is a marriage covenant under God where the man is submitted to God as his head. You women have the incredible honor of displaying Jesus by submitting to your husband. That means the more you learn to submit to your husband, the more you become like Jesus. What an incredible honor is that? And this is the biggest deal. This is where it gets intense for the men. Men, are you ready? You ready to feel a little bit of ouch? I hope so. When God calls out to the man, he says, Adam, where are you? This is why. Because men, one day as the head of your household, you will stand before God at the judgment seat of God. And you will not just give an account of your life. You will give an account of how well you led your family. You will stand before God and He will ask you, how did you lead your wife and your children to the ways of God? You will not just give an account for you and how you know you went and built these big businesses, but you were absent from your family. Your wife was lonely. She didn't have a husband who loved and poured into her and led her well. You know, you were out making the money, but your wife was alone, your kids were alone, and now they have daddy issues and most likely gonna turn gay. That's just the stats. It is what it is. Gen Z are nuts. If you're Gen Z, we love you. But you guys are crazy. What has happened? Have you guys seen, we have merch that says I'm Gen Z and I'm straight because it's such a controversial thing. And one of the biggest, um, like the Daily Mail in Australia did a whole article on our church and was like, they have merch that says I'm, I'm Gen Z and straight. Like it was the biggest deal. It is a big deal apparently to be Gen Z and to be straight is controversial. Anyways. So this is the point, is men, I know, you will stand before God one day and give an account not just for your life, but for the life of your family, for how well you led your family. 
And the stats say, right, if a man is leading the household in the ways of God, if a man is putting his children in the house of God, leading his wife to the house of God, you have less divorce, you have less suicide, you have less problems in the world. And this is the issue with the world today is men are refusing to lead and they are letting the women take charge. And feminism has been so destructive for society for this reason. It's not just on the women, it is for the men too. Feminism destroys society because it goes outside the bounds of who God is. It destroys the idea of headship and submission, which is a a godly idea. It is a sacred idea. So what is the history of feminism? I gave you a bit of Bible. I gave you a bit of the spirit of Babylon stuff. Are you ready to look? Because this is the thing, right? Many people say, yeah, feminism, the movement is bad now. But back in the day, it was all nice, right? It was gender equality and it was women just wanted to vote. If you look at it from a a surface level, yeah, it was great. Love that women get to vote. But if you read between the lines, there is a lot of deep-rooted sin at the bottom of the movement. So you okay to do some history work with me? Who likes history? Amazing. If you don't, just bear with me for the next five minutes. You'll be fine. I loved history, so... I always talk about it, but this is the whole point. So the destructive of feminism was there since the very beginning. Now I'm not talking beginning as in the Garden of Eden beginning, I'm talking historically, right? So before even first wave feminism, you have kind of the the roots of feminism historically were birthed out of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was an age of rationalistic thinking. So it was an intellectual and philosophical movement and it encouraged critical thinking. And really the Enlightenment birthed atheism. So what would happen is there was the age of exploration. So they kind of went out and they found that there is more to the earth than just what the Bible says is the ends of the earth. So they were like, wait a second, there's so much more beyond here. So maybe the Bible's not entirely true. Maybe there's truth outside of the scripture. So the age of exploration kind of brought on atheistic thinking. They saw truth outside of what the Bible said. So one of the ways that they would look at this, the age of enlightenment, they were really putting the Bible on trial. So what is truth? And they would critically analyze what the Bible said. And out of this movement came feminism. In fact, some of the early feminists known as Mary Wollstonecraft and Olympe de Gouche, they were some of the first feminists before first wave feminism. This is like the precursor to the feminist movement. These women were champions of equality. And in fact, it's kind of good to note, to, to just put out there that it wasn't that destructive from the beginning in a sense, but it progressed that way very quickly. So these women, Mary Wollstonecraft and Olympe de Gouche, they were pioneers of the feminist movement in a sense that they wanted equality in terms of education. So women weren't able to be educated the same way men were, so what they did was like, hey, we should have a right to get the same education as a man. And this may sound good, and it is good, in fact, we should have the same rights in that sense, but what this brought on was a sense of independence from men. And what this problem is, is that women, just FYI, you're not independent from your man. In fact, the Bible says the two become one. So you actually should be dependent on him in a sense. Amen. Now some of you are like, mm, I don't know about that. Go fact check me, read your Bible. But this is the point. The point of this origins of feminism before first wave feminism is women were like, hey, we want equality in education. We want the same rights to, to learn the same things. What happened from this is getting the same education meant that you weren't dependent on a man. In fact, it meant that you could work, you could make money, you could get educated and make a way for yourself and you didn't have to rely on your husband to do so. And this brought a division in the household. This brought a division in the outlook of male and female together working together in their functioning role. So this is the origins. And like I said, it progressed very quickly. Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter, her name was Mary Shelley. Her mom actually passed away pretty quickly in her childhood. So she was raised by her father and she was raised with a very, very anti-Christ education what's known as the free love movement. So it was a radical education, the free love movement, really what it was, it was, it was a statement against the traditional norms of sexuality. By traditional norms, we mean the Bible stands on sex is a gift for marriage between one man and one woman, amen. That's what the Bible says. So this is traditional norm was really what the Bible says is true. So the free love movement came out and said, no, we don't wanna be restricted because we don't like boundaries, hello. We don't wanna be restricted by what the Bible says and tradition says, we wanna have free love. We all know where that leads to. It's pretty dangerous when you don't put boundaries around sexuality, amen. 
So this is the problem, right? Mary, Mary Shelley was raised with such a radical education. She actually wrote Frankenstein. So she was very educated. And out of this movement, it starts to go, go downhill pretty quickly. Because women have now education and they are independent, they're able to make a way for themselves in the world. What happens is now women start to get in careers and children become a defining plot point. Children actually start to twist things a little bit more. Now, all of a sudden, women are able to leave the household, run out into the workforce because, you know, the industrial revolution, there's more work outside, you know, women are now able to work. Now, all of a sudden, if I get pregnant, it's a bit of a problem for me because I'm not able to pursue a career in the way that I once could. And now I'm gonna have to be bound to a household and have to rely on my husband. And I don't really like that idea, that's not really equality. So now children become what's known as individuals trespassing on private property. They now become burdens. So children now are not seen as a gift from God, now they are seen as a burden towards your fulfillment. Now children become a burden, so this is the whole plot point twist here. Now as you go into second wave feminism in the 19th to 20th century, now it gets a little complicated because the way that it worked back then, it's not the same as it works now. Now we have doctors and the medical means to, to step in and intervene when it gets dangerous. Back then, childbirth, death by childbirth was more common. And so getting pregnant didn't just mean that you'd be pulled away from your career and your right to fulfill yourself. Now getting pregnant could mean that you could die. And so women, somehow the feminist movement has twisted what it means to be a woman because when we see in the beginning, Adam calls his wife Eve. And Eve means the mother of all living. This is a super big thing for women. Womanhood, a big part of what it is to be a woman is to be a mother. It is to mother, to nurture, to care. This is embedded into the identity of every woman. And I know the consequence of sin, some women cannot have children, but you're not gonna say that some humans aren't humans because they have nine fingers, because all humans have 10 fingers, right? There are some anomalies there, but this is the point is to be woman, is to be a mother by God's standard. Eve means the mother of all living. So somehow feminism has twisted what it is to be a woman and says that your role is to be out there and to fulfill your potential in the workforce and to deny a God-given gift of being a mother. And this is what I said, right? Motherhood is a gift. Children are a gift, not a right. This is a very big distinction. Psalm 127.3 says, children are a gift from the Lord. That means if they are a gift given by God, not a right that you have as a woman, that means that no woman has the right to end a pregnancy. That means no woman has the right to say when or how or however way they want to have children. It means that it is a gift from the Lord that women submit in gratitude. But this is the problem of the feminist movement. We see a defining plot point. Now children are burdens. And so now this makes way for who we know as Margaret Sanger. Who's heard of Margaret Sanger? We don't like her, in case you don't know. We don't like her. She was a very bad woman. She was actually a rabid atheist. She hated God, bust out of the Enlightenment movement, like I said, is atheism. And she was crazy. Like she was a massive feminist. In fact, she's the, the creator of the term birth control and the founder of Planned Parenthood. And I'm sure you guys are aware of Planned Parenthood here, such a demonic organization. And so this whole idea of um, Margaret Sanger is she wasn't just an advocate for birth control and you know having babies when you want to have them, not when it just happens to you. She was actually an advocate for eugenics. And now, she wasn't just an advocate for eugenics as a theory or an idea. She was an advocate for eugenics in a time where it was a brutal experiment in Germany. And not only did she do this, she was an advocate for what is known as selective breeding. What does this mean? It means that she, as an elitist, atheist, she didn't believe in God's design for creation, that we are made equal and we have value because we are made in the image of God. She didn't believe in that, she thought it was stupid. She thought atheism and the idea of science and evolution was true. So in the evolutionary thinking, you believe that some are more evolved than others. So she believed that the rich, white, and the wealthy were above the others in society. So selective breeding, what she did, she targeted the poor, the minorities, um, the um, low socioeconomic, and people of color. So immigrants, all people that fit into this category were not as evolved in society, so we should 
put out the human weeds. She saw this as weeding society of those who were not as fit to lead in society. So this is not only was she just a terrible atheist, she was a full-blown atheist racist woman. So she targeted minorities, she targeted people of color, immigrants, those who had low socioeconomic status in the name of equality. She saw this as bettering society. She was an evil woman. And she is the origin of advocating for abortion. She actually was one of the main people who made abortion legal. So she, the founder of Planned Parenthood, this is the origin, this is where feminism has kind of exploded out of. But it's not just in the 70s, in the 60s with the sexual revolution. In fact, you can look and backtrack and see how in the very beginning in first wave feminism, that the idea of having a baby and ending your pregnancy is at the core of the feminist movement, which is a complete distortion of God's design for womanhood. And in fact, it's actually just an excuse for men to sleep around and not commit. And no worries, you can just end a baby's life, move on to the next woman, no consequences. It is outside the bounds of God's divine order. This is an incredibly unbiblical idea. So this is feminism in history. So, I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty bad. Don't you, wouldn't you agree with me? So by the time feminism hit the 70s, what had happened was they had rejected God's structure for male headship. They had abandoned the gift of motherhood. They had labeled children as burdens and introduced abortion. And they had advocated for the sexual liberation outside of the biblical sexuality. So this is destructive in all forms. Feminism is not as simple as just making women equal to men. In fact, feminism is a destruction of God's design. Feminism is a scheme of the spirit of Babylon to take what is sacred to God, to take it off the throne and to build an idol and a kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom. This is a really important thing that we need to address in the church because like I said, this is so important to God's heart because it reflects His image. This is a big deal. When you look at Babylon, what Babylon, the spirit of Babylon does in the the actual kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, when he came in, in fact, what it was seen at that time is if you invaded another kingdom that had a different God, you didn't just invade a kingdom and the people. What it was seen in that time is that you invaded the king and the God of that people. So when King Nebuchadnezzar invaded the people of Israel and the God Yahweh that was on the throne, he thought I'm invading not just the people, but I am taking Yahweh off the throne and replacing it with my Babylonian gods. So Babylon is not just about changing some minds, Babylon is about taking God off the throne. So if this is not serious to you as a Christian, then I don't know what would be. If this is not a big deal to you as a Christian, I'm telling you it is a big deal to God. And it is the responsibility of every single Christian to fight against the schemes of the enemy and to build the kingdom of God. As a kingdom builder, you don't just come to church in your little bubble and do your own thing. In fact, as a kingdom builder, you aggressively fight against schemes of the enemy, which means this feminist movement has no place in the church. It means male headship should be celebrated and submission should be encouraged. It means any scheme that goes outside the bounds of God's design gets rejected by the church. This is the hill that we as the church need to die on. And this is where too many, this is the result you saw in history, what happened when men led and men just sat passively. You saw what happened in the garden when women led and men sat passively. It is destructive. And this is the point of feminism. Like I said, spirit of Babylon convinces you that it's good. But the point is that this feminist movement isn't just bad for society, isn't just outside of God's structure. Feminism is actually the worst thing to happen to women. Feminism is the one thing that will not fulfill you. And this is what many feminists like to say. I get messages from them all the time. They're crazy, they're crazy. They're like, well, I'm happy and I'm empowered and I give my body freely because I'm free, I'm a free woman, no boundaries, whatever. They're nuts. They have convinced themselves that they are free. They have convinced themselves that they are fulfilled and they are happy, but what we know as Christians, this is the absolute truth, is anything outside of the bounds of God's word will not fulfill you. So women, any kind of idea of functioning outside of God's biblical structure of femininity will not fulfill you. It's not just about living in obedience. That's the most important thing, is obedience and holiness to God's word. But this is where it gets a bit crazy is that it actually will not fulfill you. Feminism will bring depression. Feminism brings destruction. 
So it's not only just bad for society, it's bad for women. It will not fulfill you. What I think about this is it's so interesting. So Andrew was was sick, my husband. He was sick a few weeks ago. We're in winter in Australia, so it's going around. I skipped it, thank God. But he was sick, he had the flu, the man flu, as I say. So as a, as a good wife, I made him soup, made sure to get him better because we were coming on this trip. And so I went to the store, the, the shops, I say, but the previous service was like, shops, what is that? The store, we went, I went to the store, I got him everything that I needed to make him soup. And I got home and realized I missed one very crucial piece of equipment. I didn't have a can opener. So I was like, okay, how the heck am I gonna make him soup and open this can? And I found myself in a bit of a, a situation. So I was like, all right, let's problem solve. I'll use a knife. I know, I still have all 10 of my fingers, thank God. But this is the point, right? Is a can opener is made to open cans in the same way that a knife is not supposed to be used to open cans in the same way that I cannot cut vegetables with a can opener. It is made for a specific function. And in fact, this is the whole point of us functioning in our own reality in what God has said is as women, we think in our delusional mind that's honestly distorted by sin, we think delusionally that we can function in some sort of capacity outside God's boundary and we will be happy and fulfilled. That is a lie from the enemy. You will be most fulfilled when you function within the way God designed you. And I find it so funny that we actually look to creation and we can see, oh yeah, it's science, right? You know, God has created certain animals to sleep during the day and some to sleep at night and, and some are herbivores, some are carnivores, you know, some are made to eat meat. So that means if you give them no meat, eventually they'll starve out and they'll get malnourished and they'll die. And we look at that and we say, yeah, that's science. That's just the way it works. That's a circle of life. That's how God created it. But this, with the same perspective, we look at God's design for sexuality, for gender. And we go, mm, not necessarily. It's a little bit vague, right? It, it's fluid. I don't necessarily have to function in this way. And in fact, I'll be happier going outside of God's design. How delusional can we be as human beings? That this, with the same mindset, we can look at creation outside of humanity. We look at the creation of the world and say, yeah, God has made it a certain way. It's science and it's true. And with the same mindset, we could look at how God, the maker designed creation in humanity and say, mm, something's not right here. God, you made a mistake. How can we, with the same mindset, look at that and see two very different things? It is delusional. Sin actually brings delusion to our minds. The only thing that will fulfill is working in the structure that God has set, is functioning in the boundaries that God has set. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean practically, right? Because I know we have a lot of opinions and you can have this opinion and agree with me, but it just kind of stays to yourself. This is the whole point is as Christians, we're supposed to be aggressively fighting in the cultural war. We're supposed to be speaking to politics, speaking to the culture and fighting for the kingdom of God. So what does this look like? It means that you as a, as a man or a woman of God in the design that God has given you, you have to commit to holiness. What does this mean? Well, because you're made in the image of God, you are supposed to function in a certain way. But as well as this, you being made in the image of God, you're actually not just made in the image, you as a Christian have a responsibility to be transformed into the image of Christ. So everyone is made in the image of God, but very few are transformed into the image of Christ. This is what we call theologically a sanctification. This means holiness. It means that I have to become like Jesus. It means I go through the fire and I allow God to purify me, get rid of all of the, the sin so that I am a worthy vessel to build God's kingdom. So what does this look like? It means that you empty yourself every single day of your desires. It means women, you just get over yourself and allow your man to lead and support him. It means, man, you stop being passive and, and scared on the side and you stand up and have courage and you lead your household. This means functioning in the design that God has created you to function in. It means surrendering your desires to the will of God. It means choosing to build His kingdom. So men, what does that look like for you? 
It looks like on a Sunday when your kids are in bed and it's cold outside and they're like, we don't wanna go to church. And you go to your wife and she's like, yeah, got period pain. I don't wanna leave my bed. You say, okay, nope. As for me and my house, we are getting up. We are serving in the house of the Lord. I don't care how you feel, we are gonna get up and in conviction, turn up to the house of God. It means when you come to church on a Sunday, you're not just coming in, coming out and getting your fix as a consumer. It means that you serve the house of God. It's God's house, that means it's your house if you call yourself a Christian. It means that it's not just up to the pastors and the staff to run things. It means that you put your hand up and you say, I have given my life as a living sacrifice for God's kingdom. So it means that your kids will see, okay, not only do we go to church, but I see my dad, he's serving at church on a Sunday. That is what example looks like. That's what leadership looks like. It looks like putting the Kingdom of God before your household. So that means tithing and investing into God's house financially. If you don't care more about the Kingdom of God, you better believe this is what Scripture says, seek first the Kingdom, everything else will be added. Yet we expect the blessing of God, but we don't even consider God's house first. That's delusional. Man, you have a responsibility. Tell your children what tithing is. Teach them what the Bible says about giving to God's house before your own. How are you training your children up in the ways of the Lord? You as a man, that is your responsibility. Get up, lead your family, lead your wife into the ways of God. It looks like loving and serving your wife. Reflecting God is the same way, like Ephesians 5 says, the same way Jesus loved His church. That is what functioning in the image of God looks like. And what about women? It looks like honouring God's design for womanhood and submitting joyfully. Like I said, you display the image of God. You reflect Jesus when you submit. And I think about this reality all the time that one day my husband will stand before God and he will give an account, not just for his life, but how he led mine. And God forbid I stand there and I see him being judged by God and I look at my life and I say, I was so hard to lead. I did nothing to serve and support. God forbid, because I will be judged one day too for how I supported and served my husband. It is a big mantle that men carry. Women, men carry a huge load. The spiritual load of a household is one that we will not experience. So women, what honours God in your God-given reality and function is to submit and to serve the men in our household, amen. Can we stand as a church? I wanna take a moment. If holiness is the goal of every single Christian, holiness is the goal, that means in order to be holy, you have to be purified and sanctified. That means living on the altar. That means every single day you lay down your crowns, you lay down your desires, you empty yourself completely and you say, God, for your glory alone, I don't care about what I want. I don't care about how fulfilled I feel. All I care about is pouring myself out in whatever way to build your kingdom. If you need to make an altar before God and say, God, I firstly repent of going outside of my God-given structure and I repent of being silent about it. And maybe for men, you repent of not leading your household in things of God, not being bold and courageous for women. Maybe you have not chosen to submit in many ways. Would you be willing to make an altar before God and repent and say, God, from now on, because the past is past, it's a new day. Would you say, God, I repent and I choose now from this moment on to surrender my life for the sake of your kingdom. God, we are so grateful that we get to partner with you. We get to reflect the holy image of God in what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man. God, we repent of ways that we have functioned outside of your boundaries. May you purify our motives. May you make us a holy vessel. God, would you empty us? Would you empty us so we could be filled with your Spirit to overflow? Overflow into your house, overflow into your kingdom and may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And everyone said, amen, amen. Amen, you guys give it up. Give a hand clap, what a great message. What really stood out to me in that, you know, God has a design and it is good. It is good. And you know, sometimes we overlook the unintended consequences when we veer off of God's design. You know, you get on an airplane and you head to California and you're just off a degree or two. Not a big deal, right? Until you fly all the way across the country and now instead of being in LA, you're in Alaska. 
And that's our culture today. You know, we start off a little bit off. We just reject God's design. And next thing you know, our life, our culture, our family is a mess. I want to ask you all real quick to bow your head, close your eyes. We never like to end a service without giving you an opportunity to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. That's where it all starts. And I'm here to tell you today that every single person that's ever walked this earth, every single person in this room has committed sin. We've all messed up. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gospel is the good news that Jesus came. God sent his only son to die on a cross so you and I can be forgiven. That We can leave here today with with God adjusting that trajectory of our life. No matter how far you're off, maybe for you it's a few degrees, maybe it's 50 degrees, maybe you're way off track, it doesn't matter. God can get you back in relationship with him. If that's you today and you say, man, I've never done that before, I wanna make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of my life. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right now? I'm gonna ask you to make a a bold move of faith. I just wanna see who I'm praying for. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? We just wanna say a simple prayer of faith with you. Amen. Let's pray this out loud. Pray it all together, church. Say, Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. I believe Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. And I proclaim, I confess Jesus is Lord. Thank you, God, for what you've done in me. In Jesus' name, amen.